This talk was recorded at Against the Stream Buddhist Meditation Society in Los Angeles and is freely offered for your enjoyment. For more information, please visit againstthestream.org. Well, happy Easter, everybody. Anybody get a chance to watch the Ten Commandments last night? <laughs> yeah, one of my favorite movies. Is that. I always like Huel Brenner. He just stands with so much power. So um, I thought I'd talk about the beginning of humankind today, and we take it from there. Um, but in doing so, I brought my banjolele today. So I was going to sing, uh, sing a song. Um, banjolele. They're having a banjolele festival in some city in America right now this very weekend. And I just put some new strings on my banjolele and. Uh, so, um, if you haven't ever seen a banjo lately, it's a banjo ukulele, and they come in four sizes and a variety of colors and stuff. And uh, so, this is my banjo lately. This is a uh, concert size. It's a little bigger than the soprano, a little smaller than the tenor. And, and so, mine has an accessory. Mine has a sock uh, on top, and it sort of it just uh, makes it a little bit more subtle because uh, they can be loud and take over the whole room. So here's a little song, a little Buddhist song to wake us up. <laughs> Spin well, sweet Dharma wheel, coming for to wake me up. Spin well, sweet Dharma wheel, coming for to wake me up. Well, I sat down to meditate, what did I see? Coming for to wake me up. And the Buddha's coming after me. Coming for to wake me up. Spin well, sweet Dharma wheel. Coming for to wake me up. Spin well, sweet Dharma wheel. Coming for to wake me up. Well, if you wake up before I do, coming for to wake me up. Tell my friends that I'm awakened too. Coming for to wake me up. Spin well, sweet Dharma wheel, coming for to wake me up. Spin well, sweet Dharma wheel, coming for to wake me up. Coming for to wake me up. Yeah. <laughs> so that'll get us going. And, um, <laughs> One more song. I, I'd love to do a Christian song, but it's too sad. And so this is a Bob Dylan song. And I just added a few words. Well, actually, I changed a few words. May Buddha bless and teach you always. May wisdom find what's true. May you always do for others. And let others do for you. May you build a ladder of kindness and climb on every rung. And may you stay forever young. May your hands always be busy. May your feet always be swift. May you have a strong foundation when the winds of change shift. May your heart always be joyful 
may the song always be sung, and may you stay. feel good to hear that bench lady, doesn't it? Yeah. So every Tuesday I'm at UCLA, we have a Buddhist club that meets, and uh, they've started to pick the topics for me, because um, they got bored with traditional Buddhism. And they wanted to have, the, the topic was science and Buddhism. And what they wanted to show to all the people who come to the Buddhist club, who might be new to Buddhism, that Buddhism is cool because science validates Buddhism. And there's a problem with that. Buddhism isn't cool because science validates Buddhism. Buddhism is cool because it ends suffering. And it still works after 2,500 years. And the problem when you get science involved is science is always changing, always evolving. The better instruments see further away, see closer up. And because it's always evolving, it's always coming to new and different conclusions. So. Buddhism might be validated today because of science, but maybe not tomorrow. So if science doesn't validate Buddhism, does that mean Buddhism doesn't work? I don't think so. So it's nice. So I said to myself, well, what should I share with the students? And I thought I'd share with them the beginnings of humankind according to Buddhism. You know, Buddhism never said how it all started. Buddhism never went to first cause. But as it turns out, in one of the suttas found in the Pali Canon, the early Buddhist tradition of Theravada, there is a sutta that talks about the evolution of humankind and how it all came about. And I'd be happy to email you the sutta. It even has a colorful PDF, and you can download it. And this, this will tell you how we came to be who we are. And it starts with the beginning of humankind. Now, I'm going to change some of the names, because when you read Indian Buddhism, Theravada, they always have these big, long names and a lot of consonants, and it's hard to pronounce. So uh, this is Vasetta, and I'm going to change him to Victor, because just, <laughs> it, it just works better for me. So the Buddha is talking to Victor about the beginning of humankind. There comes a time, Victor, when sooner or later, after a long period, this world contracts. And at a time of contraction, beings are mostly born in the Abhisara Brahma world. And there they dwell, mind-made, feeding on delight, self-luminous, moving through the air, glorious. And they stay like that for a very long time. But sooner or later, after a long period, this world begins to expand again. And at a time of expansion, the beings from the Abhisara Brahma world, having passed away from there, are mostly reborn in this world. Here they dwell, mind-made, feeding on delight, self-luminous, moving through the air, glorious, and they stay like that for a very long time. Biology of the human race. At that period, Victor, there was just one mass of water, and all was darkness, blinding darkness. Neither moon nor sun appeared. No constellations or stars appeared. Night and day were not yet distinguished, nor months or fortnights. 
nor years and seasons. There was no male and female, beings being reckoned just as beings. And sooner or later, after a very long period of time, savory earth spread itself over the waters where those beings were. It looked just like the skin that forms itself over hot milk as it cools. It was endowed with color and smell and taste. It was the color of fine ghee or butter. And it was very sweet, like pure wild honey. Then some beings of a greedy nature said, I say, what can this be? And tasted the savory earth on its finger. In so doing, it became taken with the flavor and craving arose. Then other beings, taking their cue from that one, also tasted the stuff with their fingers. They too were taken with the flavor and craving arose. So they set to with their hands, breaking off pieces of the stuff in order to eat it. And the result was they, their self-luminous, disappeared. And as a result of the disappearance of their self-luminous, the moon and sun appeared. Night and day were distinguished. Months and fortnights appeared. And the year and its seasons. To that extent, the world re-evolved. Evolution cycle in the human race. And those beings continued for a very long time feasting on the savory earth, feeding on it and being nourished by it. And as they did so, their bodies became coarser and a difference in looks developed among them. And some beings became good looking and others ugly. And the good looking ones despised the others saying, we are better looking than you are. <laughs> and because of that became arrogant and conceited about the looks and the savory earth disappeared. And this, they, at this they came together and lamented, crying, Oh, that flavor! Oh, that flavor! <laughs> and nowadays when people say, Oh, that flavor! When they get something nice, they are repeating an ancient saying without even realizing it. The human food chain. And then, when the savory earth disappeared, a fungus cropped up in the manner of a mushroom. And it was of good color, smell, and taste. It was the color of fine ghee or butter, and it was very sweet, like pure wild honey. And those beings set to and ate the fungus, and this lasted for a very long time. And as they continued to feed on the fungus, so their bodies became coarser still. And the difference in their looks increased still more, and the good ones despised the others. And because they became arrogant and conceited about their looks, the sweet fungus disappeared, and next creepers appeared, shooting up like bamboo. And they too were sweet, like pure wild honey. And those beings set to and fed on those creepers. And as they did so, their bodies became even coarser, and the difference in their looks increased still more, and they became still more arrogant, and so the creepers disappeared too. At this, they came together and lamented, crying, Alas, our creepers are gone. What have we lost? And so now today when people are being asked why they are upset and they say, oh, look what we have lost, they are repeating an ancient saying without even realizing it. The sexual evolution, asexual to male and female. 
And then after the creepers had disappeared, rice appeared in open spaces, free from powder and free from husks, fragrant and clean-grained, and what they had taken in the evening for supper had grown again and was ripe in the morning. And what they had taken in the morning for breakfast was ripe again by evening with no sign of reaping. And these being set to and fed on this rice, and this lasted for a very long time, and as they did so, their bodies became coarser still, and the difference in their looks became even greater, and the females developed female sex organs, and the males developed male sex organs, and the women became excessively occupied with the men, and the men with the women, and owing to this excessive preoccupation with each other, passion was aroused, and the bodies burnt with lust. And later, because of this burning, they indulged in sexual activity. But those who saw them indulging through dust and ashes or cow dung on them, crying, Die, you filthy beast! How can one being do such things to another? And now we have porn. <laughs> I don't know. Just as today in some districts, when a daughter-in-law is let out, some people throw dirt at her, some ashes and some cow dung, without realizing that they are repeating an ancient observance. What was considered bad form in those days is considered good form these days, these days, of course, being 2,500 years ago. And those beings who in those days indulged in sex were not allowed into a village or a town for one or two months. Accordingly, those who indulged for an excessively long period of time in such immoral practices began to build themselves dwellings so they can indulge undercover. First condos? Maybe so. Now, it occurred to one, occurred to one of those beings who was inclined to laziness. Well, now, why should I be bothered in gathering rice in the evening for supper and in the morning for breakfast? Why shouldn't I gather it all at once for both meals? And so we did. And then another one came and said, Come on, let's go rice gathering. And he said, No need, my friend. I've gathered enough for both meals. Then the other, following his example, gathered enough rice for two days at a time, saying, This should be enough. And then another came and, and added a second day and a third day and a fourth day and up to eight days. However, when those beings made a store of rice and lived off that, husk powder and husk began to envelop the grain, where it was reaped and did not grow again, and the cut place showed, and the rice grew in separate clusters. And then those beings came together, lamenting wicked ways have become riff among us. At first we were mind-made, feeding on delight, and eventually we went to earth and mushrooms and creepers, and rice. So now let us, up divide, let us divide the rice fields into boundaries, and so they did. Now I think it's a good story for Easter because it sort of reminds me a little bit of the Garden of Eden, you know, and, and there was just, you know, Adam, and then he had an extra rib, and then there was Eve, and then they were sort of feeding on the delight of being a human being without having to grow anything. And then, then they found out about sex, and then they had to leave, and then they had to forage and make food, and it just became more difficult and more difficult. And, and, and yet, when I thought about 
Easter, and I guess this is when Jesus was found to be missing, and he was resurrected, and I think that's what Easter is. I thought to myself, how unlike Buddhism is that? Because, because in his resurrection, he, he lived again with his Father in heaven. And the Buddhist path is to never be resurrected again, to find immortality without rebirth, to find immortality without having to be reborn even one more time. And, and so we find it in nirvana. Nirvana is the end of our suffering and the end of all our future rebirths. And whereas Jesus was looked at as a savior, the Buddha is looked at as a teacher. One who has found through his own effort and wisdom and compassion the path to the end of suffering and the path to the end of rebirth. And in his teaching, what he said to us, is this how I did it? And if you think this might work for you, please listen to what I have to say. And I really like that idea because it's up to us. And sometimes evangelicals Buddhist and otherwise, get involved in saying, hey, I've got something that everybody should hear and everybody needs to hear because it will make them suffer less or at least be happier. And yet, if someone hasn't suffered enough yet, they can't hear the words of the Buddha. They're too subtle, they're too soft. That was one of the problems I had with Thich Nhat Hanh. If you've ever heard Thich Nhat Hanh speak publicly, He's very soft and peaceful. And I swear, I just can't hear what the heck he says. <laughs> so I sort of need to be yelled at a little bit. You know, I need to have sort of a, a charismatic teacher sort of manifest in front of me and just start saying, and I can hear that. So I was drawn to the Theravada because in Theravada they, they speak uh, loudly. And, and they also speak in ways that I can understand because it's three of this and four of that and five of this and ten of this and all these little lists and things to do. And, 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 and then they say, and it's all up to you. Because they, no matter how great they are or how well taught they are or how well practiced they are, can't do one thing for me. And so I thought about the story of the Buddha. And I just wanted to share some stories of the Buddha on this day of, uh, of uh, Easter. And these are the stories that I like, for whatever reason. So the first story I like is, is how the Buddha was born, you know? Uh, he was born because his mom had a dream of a big white elephant that had six tusks, and it circumambulated her and went into her side, and she became pregnant. And I thought, what a cool story that is, you know? And, and, and how special it is. And then, unfortunately, her mom died, or his mom died. The Buddha's mom died, seven days after the birth. And I came to understand that every Buddha who has been born before on earth, 27 of them up to the time of Siddhartha, he being the 28th, every one of those mothers had died seven days after the birth. And I said, whoa. So if you are lucky enough to give birth to a Buddha, he only got seven days left, and then right into heaven. You know? Cool. So right now, the Buddha's mom is in heaven enjoying her rest after giving birth to the Buddha. It continues. He was a young man, and he had this, he had this, 
he had this skill of going into meditation, going into samadhi. And he said they were having a plowing festival, and it happened every year, and it was to bring in the new crops, and all the young farmers and agricultural people were out there, and they were showing what they could do and how well they could do it. And Siddhartha found a, a, a seat underneath a shade tree and went into the first jhana, the first level of tranquility. And while in that first jhana, he happened to notice that there was an apple in the tree and then it had a worm, and he saw a bird come over and eat the worm, and he realized how much suffering there is in the world. And, and that story became real to me two days ago because I feed nine homeless cats. They were feral cats, but I've, I've tamed them, and now they're just homeless cats. <laughs> and, and one of the homeless cats came to me in the morning as I was giving them breakfast with a bird in her mouth. Cute bird, little sparrow. Not quite dead yet. And so um, she put the bird down to eat the food that I had offered for breakfast, and I picked up the bird, and it was still moving, and it was still alive, and I put it in this little box, and I put the little box in a tree away from the cats. Figuring if it died, it would at least die in a tree and not in the cat's mouth. Or maybe the mom could find it. Well, a couple hours later, I looked in the box and it was dead. And I'm going, oh, man. You know, it's just sort of the nature of birth, where birth and death occur, you know? And, and uh, I lost the cat I had in my room a few months ago. I lost the dog I had in my room a few, uh, just recently. And, and then the little bird dies, and you just start to see all the death in the world. It's all over the place. Everything is dying all the time. Somehow I, I wasn't quite as aware of it as I am now. And, and as I get older, and all my relatives get older, and all my friends get older, some of them are going to die too. And what a shame, you know, that everybody has to die. So I think that Siddhartha in his young age, looking at the worm, it planted something in his mind that, that, that maybe he could do something to find the answer to death. Another story that I like is, is when uh, Devadatta, his cousin, was out hunting one day and had a bow and arrow and shot this bird. And the bird fell to the ground at the feet of Siddhartha. Not dead, still alive, but wounded. And Siddhartha pulled out the arrow and, and held the bird. And Devadatta came up and said, that's my bird, I shot it. And Siddhartha said, no, it's not, because it didn't die. I'm going to bring it back into life. It's my bird. And Devadatta was very angry at this and said, we're going to go to the king and figure out whose bird it is. So they both went to the king, and they said, king, whose bird is it? And the king said, it's Siddhartha's bird, because he is going to bring it back to life. He's not going to kill it. If you had killed it initially, it would have been your bird. But you didn't. So I like that story, and I and I and I like the idea that that rather than um, you know um, hunting, Siddhartha was prone to encouraging life. Now I gave a talk at a sixth grade class in Westchester a couple weeks ago, and I was talking about karma. Sixth graders are a lot of fun. They're like 10, 11 years old, and really smart. I tell you, the internet has just made them really smart. But they couldn't quite figure out karma and how karma worked. So I, I came up with a, an idea of how to explain karma. Karma is like when you go fishing, I said to them. Does anybody fish? 
couple of the boys raised their hand and said, yes, we go fishing. I said, well, karma works like this. In order for karma to work, you have to plan something. So imagine you and your dad are planning to go fishing and you, and you get all your poles and maybe uh, an ice cooler for food and some beverages. And, and so you're planning and going out to go fishing. And then you go there and then you proceed to fish. Okay, so you have to plan and then you have to do it. And now you catch a fish and you're really excited because it'll be dead soon and you can eat it. So in having, in succeeding in killing the fish and then taking joy in killing the fish, you have now created karma and there will be a consequence. If you just planned and didn't go fishing, there wouldn't be any karma. If you planned and went fishing and didn't catch any fish, you would have no karma. But if you caught the fish, and maybe didn't take delight in it, but had an awakening moment where you said, this is a fish that's alive and beautiful, and maybe I should throw it back. It would be far less karma. But when you took delight in catching the fish and finally killing it, then the consequences, you know. So they all understood, and I hopefully uh, didn't um, make it sound like it was bad to go fishing, but I thought maybe it'd be good to think about going fishing. <laughs> Maybe it's not as much fun as we all think it is. So, we continue with the stories. Now, the, the Buddha got married at 16. Or the Siddhartha got married. The Buddha never got married. But Siddhartha got married at 16. To his cousin, Yashodara. And Yashodara apparently was a beautiful girl and it was an arranged marriage and everybody was really happy. But Yashodara's father said, I don't think Siddhartha's worthy. Because he's a warrior. He's from the warrior caste. And he really hasn't done anything that would indicate that he's a good warrior. So I don't think he should marry Siddhartha. And Yashodara was brokenhearted because apparently Siddhartha was a good-looking young man. And so Yashodara went to Siddhartha and said, you've got to prove to my dad that you're going to be a good warrior. And Siddhartha said, no problem. So he got on his horse and he, and he contested against other horse riders and won every race. And then he got his bow and arrow, and he was more accurate than any other of the archers there that day. And so Yashodara's father said, he'll make a good husband. He had to prove himself first. So they became married. Now what I like about this idea of marriage with Yashodara is that he ultimately left her in the care of his parents after the first child. And, and what a story, you know, I mean, how depressing to think that the founder of a major religion in the world was a deadbeat dad, <laughs> you know? And, and then I thought to myself, I mean, what, what would he have told her? Now, I've, I've got a friend, Reverend Hung Shir, up in Berkeley, and he's at the Berkeley Buddhist Monastery, and he actually plays guitar and sings Buddhist folk songs, original Buddhist folk songs. So one of his songs is called Yashodara, and it's about leaving his wife. And what he wanted to do was show that maybe Siddhartha wasn't a deadbeat dad. That maybe for the greater good of humankind he left his wife. But even more importantly, he may have said this, according to the song, when I get free, I'll come back and get you. So he's, he's leaning over his wife, who had just had his first son, given birth, and said, I'm going to get free. And when I do, I'm going to come back and get you. Now, I don't know if that was a consolation for 
Yeshua, you know, to, to hear those words that uh, he's going to get free and make her free as well. But as it turned out, he did. And, and that is, for me, the next story that I really like is when, at one point, after Siddhartha had become the Buddha, he was giving his talks. And he was in a village, and Yashodara knew what village, and got Rahula, the son, and said to him, go ask your dad for your inheritance. Because he was a prince. He came from a very rich family. And you have a right to your inheritance. So little Rahula runs up to dad, who's now the Buddha, and says, dad, I want my inheritance. Mom over there said, I have one coming. And the Buddha said, yes, you do, my son. And he ordained him monk. So his inheritance was to become a monk, was to achieve nirvana, which he did, and become free. Now, Yashodara had lost her husband and her son. And the Buddha made her free as well, ordained her as a nun. And she too achieved nirvana. So he was correct if in fact he said, when I get free, I'll come back and get you, and I'll make you free too. And they all became free. So we have no descendants of the Buddha because of that. So we can't have like a really cool movie of people keeping one of the descendants of the Buddha, maybe a woman of some sort, a secret cult. We can't, we can't go there. <laughs> he did it through celibacy. He stopped his lineage. Okay, so now everybody's getting ordained, and Devadatta, who was in that first story, who shot the bird, is a monk as well, and following the Buddha, but he has greater aspirations than just being a monk. He wants to take the Buddha's place. And so in his mind, he says, maybe I can kill the Buddha. But he didn't, hadn't read Buddhism yet because it hadn't been written, and he didn't know that you can't kill a Buddha. You can only wound a Buddha. So the first time he tried to kill the Buddha, he was up on this mountain and he had this giant boulder and he pushed the boulder and it rolled down the mountain and it broke in two and then it broke in four and then it broke in eight. And one of the splinters from the rock hit the Buddha's foot and caused it to bleed. And it said in the suttas that it, it hit the foot of the Buddha because of some past karma in one of his past lives that had reached fruition. But even in that, it was only a wound. You can't kill the Buddha. Devadatta was really bummed out about that. And he said, I'm going to try again. And this time, I'm going to succeed. I'm going to get a giant elephant, a wild elephant. I'm going to get a drum. And I'm going to send it charging towards the Buddha. And the elephant will kill the Buddha, and I'll become head of the Sangha. And so he did. And the elephant charged. And because the Buddha had so much love and kindness, the elephant realized it. Just an amazing event occurred where the elephant bowed to the Buddha. Didn't kill him, but bowed to the Buddha. And I love these stories, and if you're scientifically prone, you may say, ah, it's just folklore or you know, good stories with a moral. But, but the stories, for me, are what makes every religion good. Because every religion has some really good stories they like to share with you. So now Devadatta couldn't kill the Buddha. He never really became a head of, of the Sangha while the Buddha was alive. But you know, when the Buddha died, there were 18 different schools that arose in the world. 
and and uh, because everybody was concerned about what the Buddha really meant. And isn't that the way life works? You know, finally, when somebody leaves and you're never going to see them again, you say to yourself, "I wish I had asked." <laughs> you know what this meant. And so today, out of all those 18 schools, one exists today called the Theravada, the Doctrine of the Elders, Southern Buddhism, found in uh, Sri Lanka and Cambodia and Thailand and Laos and parts of Vietnam. And we have monks and nuns. Now, let's talk about the first nun. The first nun was Prajapati, the Buddhist stepmother. And I may have told the story before, but I'll tell it again. That, that when the Buddhist stepmother, uh, and it was the sister of Maha, uh, 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 Queen Maha, who died seven days, her sister took over raising Siddhartha, who later became the Buddha. But then the king died, Siddhartha had left to become the Buddha, and she had no men in her life. And she realized uh, her position in the world was one that really required a man to be there to protect her and support her. She got this idea. Maybe I don't need a man. Maybe I don't need to be codependent. Maybe I could be a nun. I mean, after all, the, the young boy I raised became the Buddha. He could ordain me. The only problem in India 25 years ago, no women were involved in religious practices. They weren't good enough, according to India 2,500 years ago. But that being said, she went and asked the Buddha, can you make me a nun? He said, no, I'm sorry. If I make you a nun, my teachings will die out in 500 years. And it may invalidate my teachings today. And these teachings are too important. I can't do it. And she was really bummed out and surprised after all she had done for him, he didn't do anything for her. But she didn't give up, and she went to the next village and asked the same question and got the same answer. And she was so frustrated. She said, I'm going to talk to Ananda, his cousin, right-hand monk. Ananda, can you help me? I want to be a nun. And the Buddha won't ordain me. Ananda said, I'll take care of it for you. That's the kind of guy Ananda was. <laughs> so the third village, Ananda approached the Buddha and said, why can't you make your stepmom a nun? She, did, she, she took care of you and when you couldn't take care of yourself and you become the Buddha and now she's just asking for ordination so she can live and practice the Dharma. And the Buddha told Ananda exactly what he had told his stepmother, that in 500 years there won't be any more Buddhism and it may invalidate my teachings today and it's not worth it. And so Ananda paused and said to Siddhartha, the Buddha, can a woman achieve nirvana? And the Buddha said, of course. And Ananda said, well, why can't she be a nun? And the Buddha said, okay. It said if you ask the Buddha three times anything, he'll grant it to you. <laughs> but they hadn't written this yet, and so Ananda didn't know. <laughs> and so she became the first nun and achieved nirvana. And there's a whole series of poems in the canon of early Buddhism, Theravada, called the Terigata. And these are the poems of the original nuns. Available online and through Borders, well, Borders doesn't exist anymore, Barnes & Noble, Amazon.com, 
But I brought one of the poems today to read to you, which is my favorite one. And, you, and when you hear it, you might wonder why it's my favorite one. But it really ties in to the first thing I read, and it ties in to the problem of uh, being a woman and being a man. You know, both of those, those genders have issues. So this is the true story of lust and seduction with a twist. And this is from the Terigata, the early Buddhist poems, or the early poems of the nuns. 2,600 years ago, Suba, the Buddhist nun, was walking through a mango grove when a lustful young man blocked her path. Suba the nun, what wrong have I done that you stand in my way? It's not proper, my friend, that a man should touch a woman gone forth. Buddhist nun who has dedicated her life to finding enlightenment. I respect the Buddha's message. The training pointed out by the one well gone. I am pure without blemish. Why do you stand in my way? You, your mind agitated, impassioned, and I with the mind entirely freed. Why do you stand in my way? Young man, you are young and not bad looking. What need you to have for going forth, becoming a nun? Throw off your yellow robes. Come, let's delight in the flowering grove, a sweetness that exudes here, the towering trees with their pollen, the beginning of spring. It's a pleasant season. Come, let's delight in the flowering grove. The trees with their pure blossoming tips moan, as it were, in the breeze, what delight you will have if you plunge into the grove alone, frequented by herds of wild beasts and disturbed by elephants, rutting and aroused. You want to go unaccompanied into that great, lonely, frightening grove? Like a doll made of gold, you will go about like a goddess in the gardens of heaven with delicate, smooth, cossy, hand-woven fabrics. You will shine. Oh, beauty without compare, I would gladly do your every bidding if you were to dwell in the glade. For there is no creature dearer to me than you, O oh, nymph with the languid regard. If you do, as I ask, happy, come live in my house, dwelling in the calm of a palace. Have women wait on you, wear delicate fabrics, adorn yourself with garlands and creams. I will make you many and varied ornaments of gold, jewels and pearls. Climb onto a costly bed scented with sandalwood carvings, with well-washed coverlet, beautiful spread with woolen quilt, brand new. If you do not come with me, like a blue lotus rising from the water, where they dwell, non-human beings, you will go into old age with your limbs unseen, covered with a nun's robe, if you remain in the holy life. Suba the nun, what do you assume of any essence here in this cemetery, this body, filled with corpses, dead plants and animals that I have eaten, this body destined to break up? What do you see when you look at me? You, who are out of your mind, young man, your eyes, like those of a fawn, like those of a spirit in the mountain, seeing your eyes, my sensual delight grows all the more, like tips that are of blue lotuses 
in your golden face spotless, seeing your eyes, my sensual delight grows all the more. Even if you should go away, I will think of only the pure and languished gaze, for there is nothing dearer to me than your eyes. O nymph with the languid regard, Suba the nun. You want to stay from the road? You want the moon as a plaything? You want to jump over Mount Sumeru? You who have designs on one born of the Buddha, ordained as a nun under the Buddha? For there is nothing anywhere at all in the cosmos with its gods that would be an object of passion for me. I don't even know what passion would be, for it's been killed, root and all, by the path, like embers from a pit scattered, like a bowl of poison evaporated. I don't even see what that passion would be, for it's been killed by the path, understanding how her mind works. Try to seduce one who hasn't reflected on this, or has followed the Buddha's teachings, but try it with this one who knows, and you will suffer. For in the midst of praise and blame, pleasure and pain, my mind stands firm. Knowing the unattractiveness of all things compounded, my mind cleaves to nothing at all. I am a follower of the one well gone, riding the vehicle of the eightfold way, my arrow removed, free, I delight. Having gone into an empty dwelling, has seen through the illusion of self. For I have seen well-painted puppets, hitched up with sticks and strings, made to dance in various ways. When the sticks and strings are removed, thrown away, scattered, shredded, smashed into pieces not to be found, in what will be the mind where it makes it home, this body of mind which is just like that when devoid of dharmas, truths doesn't function. When devoid of dharmas it doesn't function, in what will the mind there make its home? Like a mural that you have seen painted on a wall smeared with yellow paint, there your vision has been distorted, meaningless, your human perception. Like an evaporated mirage, like a tree of gold in my dream, like a magic show in the midst of a crowd, you unblind after what is unreal. My eye resembles a ball of sealing wax, set in a hollow with a bubble in the middle and bathed with tears. Eye secretions are born here too. The parts of my eye are all rolled together in various ways. Then the nun, Suba, plucked out one of her lovely eyes from its socket, and with mine unattached, she felt no regret. Suba the nun, here, take this eye, it's yours. <laughs> and straight away she gave her eye to the young man. And straight away the young man's passion faded. <laughs> right there. <laughs> and he begged her forgiveness. Young man, be well, follower of the holy life. This sort of thing will never happen again. Harming a person like you is like embracing a blazing fire. It's as if I have seized a poisonous snake. So may you be well. Forgive me. And released from there, the nun Suba went to the Buddha's presence, and when she saw him, her eye became as it was before. She got her eye back. And he gained a good lesson. <laughs> and you know, in my own life, as I try to cut through the illusion of beauty, and beauty's all around, it's just wonderful to see. But 
having beauty, you also have ugliness. And you, and you saw in the, in the first story, you know, there, there weren't any men and there weren't any women and there wasn't any beauty and there wasn't any ugliness and it was just delight and happiness. And, 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 and I think that's the true nature of our mind. But as our mind gets poisoned with greed, hatred, and delusion, mm-hmm. we start to have uh, dualistic interpretations. And in that interpretation, we find beauty and we find ugliness. And, and so for me, when I, when I see love and I see lust, and I see that lust is about power and control and greed, and I see lust is about freedom. And I see, oh, pardon me, love is about freedom and acceptance and encouragement. So sometimes I just happen to see a photo of Jennifer Lopez. And I say to myself, Lust, love. Lust, love. <laughs> it's a hard call. <laughs> but in this practice of coming to a place of equanimity and balance and peace, what we find is all those dualistic interpretations of the world fall aside for a few moments and we become free. Free. And in that freedom, we find ourselves again. So I'd like to stop there and ask if anybody has any questions or comments about what I've said or read. Anything they'd like to add or take away in that? And, and how it might fit into Easter? I, I don't know. But what I find when I talk to Christians practicing, practicing, celebrating Easter is that they have a much different approach their salvation. And, and, and so I encourage them to find salvation in their religion. And, and, and in my own religion, I find salvation from suffering, from confusion, from non-peace. So I called my mom today. I said, Mom, happy Easter. She says, do you believe in Easter? I said, well, I don't really believe in it, but I, I think it's an interesting celebration. <laughs> I says, Mom, do you believe in it? She says, yes. I said, happy Easter, Mom. <laughs> so I guess it's okay for Buddhists to say happy Easter, especially to their mom. <laughs> yes? So my question about the way you said about um, when you're Buddhist, you just get to, you know, reach nirvana and you don't have to come back again. So uh-huh. what about the Mahayana, you know, the Buddhist vow where it says that you, pr- you promise to come back until all beings achieve enlightenment? Absolutely. There's an interesting theory about that. That Remember in the story about uh, the Buddhist stepmother becoming a nun, he kept saying, if I ordain you, my, my teachings will only last 500 years. So around the first century, 500 years later, everybody was really freaked out. It's going to be the end of Buddhism. The Buddha predicted it's going to be the end. They had these Christian missionaries now, because Christ was around. And Christ sent out people when they were talking about the good news. You know? And they're all walking around and they're talking. And I'm thinking maybe some Buddhist monks saw all the Christians talking and talking about other power rather than self power, and maybe forgiveness and salvation. And just maybe that's one of the reasons we have Mahayana Buddhism. Because Mahayana Buddhism is a much different creature than early Buddhism. 
It really focuses on enlightenment rather than nirvana. Enlightenment being the direct experience of the interconnectedness of all phenomena. Easy for me to say. And nirvana being the end of suffering, the end of karma, and the end of all future birth. And the, and the Mahayana is called the Great Vehicle. They named it themselves. And when they talk about the smaller vehicle, the Hinayana, the Theravada, they, they call those uh, practitioners selfish. All they care about is themselves. All they want is nirvana. All they want to do is end their suffering. And, and they say, we are not going to end our suffering right away. We're going to help everybody end their suffering. And then we'll end our suffering. And, the, and it sort of sounds, to me it sounds like they're praising themselves in a way, that their path is, the, is a, they've taken the higher road rather than the lower road, and everybody's going to say, okay. But they don't want to be simply enlightened. They don't want to simply achieve nirvana. They all want to be Buddhas. They say, we're not going to do what the Buddha said. We're going to do what the Buddha did. And the only bodhisattva you ever read about in early Buddhism is the Buddha before he became the Buddha. That's the bodhisattva in Theravada Buddhism. But now, Mahayana Buddhism, everybody's a bodhisattva. And they're all there to help you. You have the bodhisattva of compassion. Life sucks a little bit. She can help you, Kuan Yin. She hears the cries of the, of the world. And, and she's there. And then we have Manjushri, the Bodhisattva of Wisdom. He can help you gain insight and wisdom into the true nature of reality. We have Jizu, my favorite Bodhisattva, who's chosen to go to hell and help all those hell beings. And so I imagine I'll see him. <laughs> so it's nice to have a Bodhisattva in hell, too. You know? So we have all these bodhisattvas, and they're just all working really hard to help everybody. And, and, you know, that to me sounds a little bit Christian, you know? But it sounds good. It sounds really nice. And, and, and I like that idea. So I, I'm not going to curse them as being the reformers, being the Lutherans of, <laughs> of Buddhism. You know? But I've just started to read the, the life and times and teachings of Honan. And he is the founder of Pure Land. And what an amazing fellow. Pure Land is, is the most popular Buddhism in Asia. None of us practice Pure Land here. We all want to achieve nirvana or enlightenment, you know. And Pure Land is simply going to heaven. And in my life, as I've said before, it sort of worked like this. I came to Buddhism at 30, and so I, between 30 and 40, I was really getting ready to achieve nirvana. And then about... 45, I'm thinking, I'm never going to achieve nirvana. So I started reading about the Mahayana and enlightenment and being a bodhisattva. And so about 45, I said, I'm going to be a bodhisattva, I'm going to achieve enlightenment, and my life's going to be wonderful. And so at the age of 60, you know, I hadn't achieved nirvana or enlightenment. And I'm thinking, yeah, you know. And I only got a couple good years left before I become senile and can't walk anymore. And so I'm thinking to myself, I'm going to heaven. You know how they say at the end of the Super Bowl, I'm going to Disneyland? Well, I'm going to heaven. And, and who's going to help me? Amita Buddha. Amitabha Buddha. The Buddha of the Western Paradise. The Buddha of the heaven. Yeah, there is one. We, this Buddha, who became a Buddha after eons of practice in the Mahayana tradition, said, my gift to everyone will be heaven. 
And you don't have to study the Dharma. You don't have to be like a theologian or Buddhologist. You don't even have to meditate. You just have to be human, and you just have to say with faith, vow, and devotion, my name three times, and you get to go to heaven. And so he was a heretic in China, Honan, around the 12th century, because he sort of formalized this and codified it, and he, he had found some Pure Land teachings in India around the first century, yeah, some, and, and it made its way up to China, but, but he really codified it in Japan around the 12th century. And, and now, in Japan, Buddhism was a natural, nat national religion. But in order to be a good Buddhist, you had to have some money. You know, you had to give a, something, a temple to somebody, or you had to be a monk, and you had to practice meditation, and you had to give up the life. And, and Honan said, no, you don't have to do any of that. That's for the elite. You can go to heaven. And you don't have to be intelligent, you don't have to read, you don't have to write, you just have to have faith. And, you know, and everybody got on the bandwagon. Let me get out my wallet. <laughs> well, you don't even have to. That was the good part about this. You didn't even need money. You could go to heaven. You couldn't buy your way into this heaven. You just have to have faith and devotion. And they tried to kill him. Well, what else would you do with a heretic? And, and, <laughs> and you know, and even Nishran, the founder of Soka Gakkai, the founder of Nishran Buddhism, called him a heretic. Because he wasn't talking about the Lotus Sutra, and he wasn't talking ever about Shakyamuni Buddha, he was talking about Amitabha Buddha. And so, he, and then those who followed him, have made this a very important religion. And you walk into the church, there's one downtown, uh, Buddhist Churches of America, uh, the Pure Land sect, there's a couple of them, and it's like you got pews set up, and you got your songbook, and your hymnal, and you got the words, of, you know. And you just, it's like, yeah, it's like being in church. So, you know, the more, the older I get, the more this sounds good to me. Though I'm still going to sit, I'm still going to read, I'm still going to teach, but I'm, I'm going to keep practicing. So, I mean, heaven sounds like a good rest after being in LA for all these years. <laughs> oh, time to rest. So, some of the reasons the Bodhisattvas and Mahayana arose, the part that I liked, is the fact that the Buddha warned his teachings weren't going to last any longer than 500 years, so they changed Buddhism. And, and yet that kind of Buddhism that the Buddha taught is still alive and well today, and most of you are probably involved at some level in that kind of Buddhism because of the Theravada background that seems to be inherent in this center more Theravada than Mahayana. I don't know. If, okay, you feel that way too. Okay. So, it's alive and well and doing fine, even though women were ordained. I like that. I don't know if that answered your question, but it gave me a chance to talk about something. I always heard that, and from, you know, from different teachers, because I like learning, so I really I appreciate that historical context. But I always heard that the Buddha taught according to his audience, so that you know if his audience was kind of ready for a certain step, that's the one you taught them. Uh huh. That's correct. And so what I've heard, well, from what I've heard from the Tibetans, theirs was um, not even taught by the Buddha, but it was transmitted later on. Yeah. But from the groups that are Mahayana that the Buddha actually ta literally taught 
that to people. Is that not so? I, I would say there's probably a reason for debate when it comes to that. Uh -huh. uh, because if you go to the canonical text of early Buddhism, okay, uh, those are pretty much looked at as the original teachings of the Buddha. You know, and, and they weren't written out immediately, and they've been modified by monks and nuns over the centuries, but pretty close. And, and so um, it, when you start reading the Mahayana uh, text purported to come from the Buddha, you find that's a much different ballgame. You get all sorts of world systems and miracles, and it's pretty cool. You know, it's like science fiction. <laughs> and, they, and they attribute that to the Buddha. And they, they often start the, the suttas with thus I have heard, which is what they did in early Buddhism. And that means that Ananda is speaking about this. But most of the Mahayana sutras were written later, much later. And, and so you, you get into that kind of stuff, you know. And then, I, I love the Tibetans because they say, well, this is the hidden teaching. You know, they were too dumb in the beginning to understand this. And the Mahayana, you know, but now we've got, you know. And, and so they sort of combined early Buddhism and later Buddhism and thrown some of their own stuff in. Bang. Okay, but there's truth in all of those teachings. And there's truth in all those stories. It's just some stories, people like those stories better than these stories. I sort of like the early Buddhism because you can really see the personalities of the people, you know, and, and the Buddha, you know, if he didn't like what was going on, he'd just sort of leave. And everybody would go, oh, the Buddha left. What are we going to do now? <laughs> go back and get him. You know? So the Buddha was portrayed as very human in those. And sometimes he'd have to sit down because his back hurt because he was 80 years old. And I love that stuff because that's going to be me. And that means that what he did, I could do because he never became anything more than, than human. He just became a really good human. And in later sutras, they elevate him into almost a god status or a deity status, and, uh, which always bummed me out, you know? Because uh, I, I, I'm not going to get there. I'm not going to be one of those guys. I'm just going to be a human guy. And so I like to hear about what other humans are doing to make their life better. And uh, so it's fascinating. There's, a, there's books written about the evolution of you know the teachings of the Buddha and the different schools of Buddhism. And if you have a mind to, there's, it's out there, and it's fascinating. And then you can draw your own conclusions, you know. But the most important thing is not what we read; it's what we practice. And reading only gives us stuff to talk about and think about. But the practice actually changes us, you know, and, and gives us a chance of freedom. It's cool. And I think we should end with a loving-kindness meditation for all the humans in the world today <laughs> who may or may not be suffering. May those of us who have come together today in mind and heart be happy, peaceful, and free from suffering. May no harm come to us May no difficulties come to us. May no problems come to us. May we always find fulfillment. May we also have patience, courage, understanding, and determination to meet and overcome the inevitable difficulties, problems, and failures in life. May the suffering ones be suffering free, the fear-struck, fearless be. May the grieving, 
shed all grief. May the sick find health relief. You have just listened to a podcast from Against the Stream Buddhist Meditation Society. If you'd like to make a contribution to help support these teachings, please visit againstthestream.org.